Hey, Augmenters. I'm Julie. And I'm Jimmy. And we know that great leaders have great mentors. And today we are joined by a great leader, Mike Manazir, Admiral Leadership Expert, Commanding Officer, Retired U.S. Top Gun Fighter Pilot, and author of Learn How to Lead to Win. Today, we're going to learn how to connect better with others by practicing our tone. You will also learn how to grow to your potential by understanding the relationship a little bit better between the words mentee and mentor. And our principle that will guide us through this episode is vision. Mike has a clear, rock steady, knows where he's going, avoiding any icebergs in his path, vision. And you are going to hear all about it in our discussion with Mike. Here we go. So first of all, Mike Manazar, welcome to Augmenters. We are so excited to have you. You have an incredible history we're going to hear all about in the Navy, aviation, an incredible leader, and the author of the book, Learn How to Lead to Win. But first, we want to learn a little bit more about you. So Mike, one of the ways our guests introduce themselves is they often say that a mentor is somebody who saw something in them before they saw it in themselves. So who was that for you and what did they see? So I'm, I'm going to, I've had so many mentors through my life, Julie and, and Jimmy, and it's wonderful to be here. I, I'm already feeling good about, you know, talking with you and we've already established a rapport. So, so thanks for that. And, and mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's just great to talk about this stuff. The first mentor that really affected my journey and that write about in the book and the, and the book journey is from when I started thinking about going to the Naval Academy, U.S. Naval Academy, graduated in 1981 all the way to retiring in 2017, 36 years later, well, actually 40 years later wow. when you count the academy time as a two-star admiral. But that first mentor was a guy named Chuck Clopton. And Chuck wow. Clopton was That's a, a great mentor name, by the way. That's oh, yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. We've, we've found cool. most mentors have great mentor name. That's a great one. Yeah, Chuck. Okay, Chuck. <laughs> um, but he was, he was a U.S. Naval Academy blue and gold officer. He, he was a reserve lieutenant commander in the United States Navy, and, and he was a, a, a lawyer. So we call those uh, JAGs, Judge Advocate General in the Navy. So we call him a JAG. But he was a lawyer, and, and his, the blue and gold officers volunteer their time in the community. And that, and that was in Southern California, Mission Viejo, California at that time. And, and my blue and gold officer was, was not helping me as much as maybe I needed to be helped in my process to get into the Naval Academy, which was my North Star at the time. I was headed in the Naval Academy mm-hmm. and that's it. I'm going. Your vision. Department. Your vision was set. Vision. Yep. And we, there's three themes in the book. We'll talk about those when you get to that question. But, but the, my North Star was going to the Naval Academy and, and Chuck turned into that mentor that guided me on the path and helped me to do those things that got me to the Academy. So he was the first one in that time. And then since then, of course, you know, mentors throughout, throughout my career to help, help kind of, uh, illuminate the path as it were. How did that conversation first come up? And like, how did Chuck reply to you when you were like, this is what I'm doing. I'm going to the Naval Academy and either you're helping me or you're in the way. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't, um, I, I didn't say either you help me or you're in the way. And so as it turns out, there is a rising high school senior who lives in Richmond, Virginia, mm-hmm. who connected with me on LinkedIn and he said, I just read your book. I'm going to the Naval Academy. I need to come meet you. And, and What's I said, What's his name? Do we give him a shout out? My name is Shep. His name is Shep Pounders. Also so, an amazing mentee name. Way, way cool name, right? <laughs> so Shep, I don't know Shep. Uh, one, one, of my, one of my friends who actually I haven't seen in person in, in several years, but we've remained in contact. He says, hey, can I connect this guy Shep with you? He's high school. He wants to go. He wants to go to the nail academy. I said, yeah, sure. You know, I mentor and, and, and give advice on concept. Well, this kid's like, I need to come meet you in person. I'm like, dude, I can still help you without you coming all the way up here. He's no, I'm coming in person. And so I introduced him to my, uh, my admin and she set up the calendar and he's coming to Boeing headquarters next week. Can uh, we interview Trump. Shep after he's done with you? Because it sounds like he's got some good information to you, share you with our should. audience. Yeah, then you should. I mean, I know he's going to do it. I mean, I was going to say I could. I just give you his contact information. We should. We should do that. But but I'm not kidding. And so as a mentor, and and to answer your question, Jimmy, what mm-hmm. Chuck saw in me, and by the way, I was his most successful Naval Academy candidate, uh, midshipman, and then graduate. 
So I reached the highest rank. So he would talk about me as like his most successful dude. Well, <laughs> I was going there and I was going to fly and that's what I was going to do. And so when I listened to Shep, what attracts me as a mentor is his drive. And you're going to do what it takes to get to that North Star. And I'm going to help you on this path. And we'll talk about in like Julie, Julie, you and I talked about the different kind of mentorship where you're pushing somebody. But this is this is easy mentorship. This is channeling that energy towards the North Star and seeing something in somebody that says that that kid or that person is going to succeed. And so when 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 Chuck when Chuck first met me, uh, he knew that that this was going to be relatively easy for him. He didn't have to do any convincing. He just say, okay, do this. I'm going to do that in spades, you know, do that. I'm going to do that. And more, I mean, go, go here, do this, do this, bang, 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 bang. So all the energy, he can channel the energy towards uh, what needs to happen. So Mike, what do you think after the first time Chuck met you or talked to you, what do you think he turned around and told to his friend at coffee the next day or his, you know, partner at dinner that night? What do you think he said about you? How did he describe you after that first meeting? I think he was probably used a lot of superlatives. You know, we're always looking for people who demonstrate the capability and the and the the, the talents to go somewhere. You know, the mentor, the mentorship thing is to look for people who are trying to put into a certain position. And and if I was if I put myself in in his brain relating Mike Manazer, you know, to to his guest and and uh, you know somebody say, hey, I found this guy who does all he wants to do is go to Naval Academy and and it, the energy there and he would he would comment about the energy and and the connection. And so the other th- the other thing with you know with mentors and mentees, and, and I'm gonna tell you this, this is to to all your listeners of a mentorship program will not work. A mentorship we program agree with you and that it will we are aligned. Work. Well, there's yeah. a lot of reasons why it won't work. And there's a very few that set it up for success that usually are not. Correct. Part of it. Yeah. So, so it does when it's set up for success. But the point is the mentor and the mentee have to establish a human connection, heart to heart. There's mm-hmm. gotta be, you gotta like being with the person. You got to see something in them that you're wanting to give more of yourself to them. And the mentee has to, extend trust and then have that trust returned, obviously, with the mentor, right? And and so they're going to tell them stuff and they're going to share and they're going to cry maybe. And they're going to, you know, they're get, you know, hum- the human connection is absolutely vital. And I just found that, that you know, it's like Chuck, I'm sure he went to dinner, you know, that night, Jimmy, and he said, I like this kid, you know? And so as is related in the book, Julie, the I would see him in 1986. I was assigned to USS Carl Vinson in VF-51 fighter squadron, flying Tomcats off the ship. And Chuck was part of the Admiral's staff. He was the Admiral's lawyer. So here's this kid, this high school kid that he mentored to get into the Naval Academy. I'm Tomcat pilot on the, and a a relatively famous one on the, (laughs) on the (laughs) ship. And he's like, that's my boy. Mm. Okay, wait, is this like Top Gun? Is this kind of like the whole Top Gun? Is it like flying off the plane and coming like, I'm sure it's a bad dramatization, but I'm just trying to get a vision in my head. Somebody. If anybody's seen the, yeah, the movie. So I went to, I went to Top Gun in 85 when the movie was being filmed. The first one. Wow. Uh, uh, So how good are you at volleyball? (laughs) 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 Or karaoke, bad karaoke. I'm sure. Yeah. Karaoke. Yeah. I actually, I tell you this really funny. I get introduced in a, you know, a speaking engagement about a month ago. And, uh, you know, here it is. And I walked up there and I started with, you never close your eyes on the thing. I said, well, wait a minute, wait, 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 wrong gig, wrong gig. And you know, that, that got a little bit of a laugh. So, That's hilarious. Yeah. That's <laughs> hilarious. But it does bring up a good point, Mike, that, um, and I, I definitely wanted to like probe a little bit on the North Star because that is actually our first principle of vision. But yeah. I love what you said, because I think there's an element, you know, we talk a lot about the mentor and the mentee each getting an equal amount out of the relationship. There's an idea that, you know, the mentee is the only one who's going to get anything and the mentors continue to give. But look at how your mentor was able to not only feel a flex in his environment, but he also probably felt really great that he had been a part, he'd like participated in your journey. So he could able be able to, you know, sort of see success in himself too. And I'm sure he's like learned a ton from you. Also, you probably kickstarted him. You probably was a kicked his ass too a little bit to get, you know, him back in the game, getting excited about things. So that's awesome. But also the North Star, can we talk a little bit more about that? Like one of our first, one of our, actually our very first guest, Pete Brace said, when you're mentoring people, they say, you got to want to. <laughs> that's what he said. You got to want to. And 
it sounds like you definitely wanted, but what do you do with people who don't or who have a hard well, time envisioning that North Star? Yeah, so there's so many places we can go. First, first, let me address the uh, the idea of the energy you get as a mentor from somebody else. Mm. Absolutely, 100%. You're invested in their success. You're disappointed when they're disappointed. You cry when they cry. They didn't, you know, your, your energy is you're propelling them towards that North Star or whatever it is they want to do, right? And and so you're part of the success and you're, that that's why I talk about the human connection. You have to be invested in success and you you have you have to like the person. You have to, you know, want to be around them. You have to respect their point of view, the, the what they want to do. You want to help them. You know, the vision has to be relatively achievable. You know, here's a high school kid. I'm going to go be the president of the United States. So mentor me to be the president of the United States. Well, okay, that, that might be the thing like way down there, but we got some interim steps to go in here. So what is it on the way to go there? So yes, the successful mentor is personally invested in the mentee's success. Personally invested, has to be. You know, I, I have had people come to me for, it's different than advice, professional advice, right? So I have people in my current company that come to me for mentorship, but actually it's advice. Like what, you know, how should I think about work and stuff like that? So it's a little bit of a superficial thing, but everybody calls it mentorship. And they, they look at somebody who's relatively out there. And then what, I mean, in, in the public space a little bit, like they see me on social media and they see, I write about mentorship. Hey, would you be my mentor? Obviously, you know something about this. Well, if there's no personal connection, certainly can give professional advice, but there's, there's a difference there. So, but the, you've got to be able to have that connection towards the vision. And I find that the mentee, they have to want to. I mean, they, they have to. What are we working towards? I'm going to give you, we'll go to that thing you and I talked about in, in the call. I want to, I want to do that, that differently later on. It is not worth mentoring somebody that doesn't have a vision. If you want to succeed, you need to have a vision. So the, my book has three themes in it. The first one is a North Star vision. Begin with the end in mind. One of the seven habits of Covey is to have a vision. Napoleon Hill, think and grow rich. You write it down. I'm going to do this. Here's the date. And it's going to happen. When human beings- Mike, you'd be stunned how powerful that is. I write down now every Monday, I won't be late when Julie needs me to show up somewhere. And it works like a charm. <laughs> it works worked. like a charm. It's worked. And, and, and the potential for physical harm probably works as well. You know, so, yeah. we, are, we are quite far apart. It's more emotional torture yeah. uh, than it's, actual yeah. physical. He is stronger emotional than Emotional torture, yeah. yeah <laughs> Which I'm is much work. You. Yeah, much, much, much work. But, but, the, but the mentee has to have something that they want to go do, right? They want to, they got, mm. I'm going to go do this. Now there might, and even for people that are just trying to get better in life, there are there are tactical objectives. I want to be a I want to be on time more. You know how do you, you know, help me mentor to be on time more? I want to be a better person. I want to be a better public speaker. I want you know general stuff that isn't necessarily a north star goal, but I want to get better at something. You you can't mentor somebody who's just like you know sitting there unless what you're trying to do is actually you know save their life because you need to get them up and out of where they are and and moving and. And now that becomes a different sort of, you know, influence kind of thing. Mike, could you, could you go back a little bit to just, you said the di- like the differences or you brought this up. It's something we haven't really touched on as much, but I hear it all the time of mentoring versus professional advice. You know, there are things that are like, you know, the 10 minute mentor, the 30 minute mentor, the, a lot of universities have like, oh, like uh, rapid mentor sessions where you can talk to an industry expert, which how would you describe other than that personal connection? What else would be the big differences between that professional advice in mentoring? Is it amount of time? You know, like, yeah. What are some of those qualifications? Yeah, I, th- I think it's giving a personal like, hey, so so let's say you're doing a speed dating thing and you're doing professional advice and it's set up that way. And, you know, people use mentoring. It's it's a catch word, right? It's a watch word. Totally. And by the way, every leader needs to have good mentoring skills. Ooh, you don't have to be, say that again, Mike. Every leader has to have good mentoring skills. Because you will find yourself in, in daily battles with your, your job and your team and all that kind of stuff. You will fall into a mentor mode, whether it's how to do a presentation or a paper or it's feedback, right? And so maybe one of your direct reports gave a gave a, a presentation to the big boss and and now you walk out of there and of course the mentee's like, well, how did I do? Or you're going, oh my God, we just failed incredibly. But now you're going to mentor the person because they were in the arena and now you want to help them out. But that's different than being a mentor. And people, oftentimes they split those things apart. You know, there's leadership and there's being a mentor. Every leader has to have mentoring skills and has to be good at it. 
Otherwise, you're not going to influence your team to be better. It might be group of mentorship. It might be individual mentorship. Uh, it's providing feedback to people on what their what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, how to improve, you know, what I can do, that kind of thing. So, And, and is that because every leader needs to be emotionally invested in the success of their team? Oh, Jimmy, I, I that's all I write about. You can't lead with your title. You have to lead with your heart. My book's about leading with your heart and the human connection that comes with being a leader. And I write, you know, I, when, I, when I sign a thing, I write, lead from your heart. Mike Menazer, you know, nasty. And that's, I led successfully when I connected with the people, you know, whose job it was for me to lead, right? So it's got to be emotional connection. That's why we often talk about, you know, the emotional intelligence of different people. And well, they're not really emotionally intelligent. And it might be that somebody's an automaton and they just kind of do that technically thing but if they're they're somehow connected and you know they they're reachable with you know as a human then then you, they're going to be an effective leader so whether introvert extra a lot of people go well, I can't do it that way because I'm not an extrovert or I'm not willing to share yeah you are I mean you, you just figure out how to do that and and so no matter if you're an introvert or an extrovert if you don't enjoy getting on stage as a leader if you don't enjoy giving speeches you know if you're not a cheerleader different person if you connect you know through your heart to people and you genuinely find that human connection you you ask about their background you're interested in their perspective you're you know you're being inclusive that's from the heart and you get rid of any of the trappings of rank so you know i had all kinds of privilege in my career i was an officer in the united states navy you know i was a naval academy graduate i had rank I was the skipper. I was the admiral. You know, I was, I'm a Top Gun graduate. All that's bullshit. What kind of person was I? You know, when I was the captain, I thrived on the human connection with all 5,000 people on the ship and that they knew they could come up to me and say something to me and not go, oh, that's, and now what they would do is go, that's the captain. We can't talk to him. Shh, look at, look at, it's like a zoo animal. I could take a picture. Hey, Captain, take a picture with you. It was like taking a picture with a giraffe. You know, here's the captain, the giraffe. You know, or Tom Cruise. <laughs> yeah, or Tom Cruise. So I tell you a fun story at Top Gun and, and, and Tom. So John yes. Hamm came to St. Louis to one of our big fighter sites where we build F-18 Super Hornet. And that's the airplane in Top Gun 2. And so he came up to meet the workers that build the airplane. Mm. And one of our executives was taking him around and, and he would walk up to people on the, and of course they're like, whoa. And he'd go, hi, I'm John. What's your name? Yeah. And like a guy, I know, I know who you are. You know, <laughs> and, and so you see people like that that are in celebrity roles and whatever it is, sports. Yeah, figure, and you were the same. You had the captain. Yeah. You were the same. You were the celebrity the captain, of the ship. Right. Yeah. And there's the captain. And you would put them on that pedestal. You stick them there. Of course, as a as a leader, you have to understand that you are on that pedestal. You can't be like everybody's friend. You do have to lead, but they just assume you're not approachable. And when you become approachable and you're a, a human being and a nice human being to them, and you acknowledge the fact that you know they're on the ship with you or they're, you know, they like the movie and you're humble about it and you, you say thank you and you're appreciative of the connection with them. Oh my gosh. I mean, it, it gets this magnifying effect, you know, that the, the captain chose to talk to me. Well, of course I did. I mean, we're at sea together. Why wouldn't I talk to you? You know, because you're the captain. You don't have to talk to me. There's a story in my book and, and it's it's pretty huge, uh, Julie. It's it's It talks about learning people's names. And I um, it's a pretty powerful story. And I, and I recommend it to, you know, one of the takeaways from our podcast today is people, you know, go learn people's names. And it turns out that, you know, if you learn somebody's name, identity attached to our name and the fact that somebody who should not know your name knows your name is very powerful. And so I learned everybody's name in my fighter squadron, all 350. People. The officers were easy. I saw them every day. The enlisted was, I did, had to do some learning. And so it, we were at, uh, at Fallon, Nevada in uh, spring of 1998. And we're walking, you know, this wonderful, crisp dawn morning in the desert towards our Tomcats. We're going to go, we're going to go fly, a, you know, a, a training strike. And there were a couple of petty officers that were walking about 200 yards away towards my airplane. And we were kind of, me and my backseater were kind of intercepting as we went. And I knew one of them had a wife in the hospital down in San Diego, which is about 10 hour ride or you know, a couple hour plane ride down there. And so I was a little concerned that you know, things were going okay. So as related to the book, I started yelling at him, you know, across a couple hundred yards, you know, Petty Officer Edwards, you know, Petty Officer Edwards. And he's looking and he's looking and he's looking and he's looking and he's trying to angle away. And I'm angling that when he's angling away. And I go over there and I go, hey, come here. You know, and he comes over and he goes, I said, Petty Officer Edwards, he goes, Skipper, you know my name. And I go, of course I know your name. You work for me. And he goes, no, if you know my name, I'm in trouble. Huh. And I go, no, 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 no. So that's why so, he kept trying to walk away from you. Yeah, that's why he kept oh trying to God. walk away. So <laughs> that that got back to the the ombudsman that that I knew everybody's name, and instantly I became this guy who cared about everybody because I knew their names. Just 
that. Now you have to be authentic. You have to really do that. So it's not a trick where you learn somebody's name and go there. I, you know, now, now they think I care about them. It's deeper than that. But when you learn somebody's name and you simply be able to do that, like, you know, you don't have, you don't need a name tag that has our name on it. You look down and go, hi, Petty Officer Smith. How are you? You know, and stuff. so anyway, it's that, it's that personal connection. So Mike, tell me how you do that at scale, because, you know, I, ha- I have a lot of people come to us and say, oh, it's great. You know, I understand that like, you know, all great leaders have great mentors. Sure, sure. But I have 350 people. I have 5,000 people who I lead and it's overwhelming, let alone the names themselves. But you're saying you were somehow emotionally connected to all 5,000 people, yet at the same time, you couldn't be everybody's friend and you needed to lead. So how do you balance that, like the, the need for leadership and setting a direction with also being emotionally connected to an amount of people that is beyond almost every human's ability to keep in their head unless you're a savant? Yeah. So tone. It's tone. tone. I love that word. That's a great word. Communication and it's tone. And I commanded USS Nimitz from March of 2007 to August 2009. That's 5,000 people. I don't want anybody saying that they can't lead 5,000 people. BS. Hmm. Your tone, the way you communicate, who you call out. You're probably not going to know all 5,000 people. Now, I I will not tell you that I learned even 3,000 people on the ship's crew when I was XO of USS Carl Vinson, second in command around 9-11. But I knew some key people. And so I would run around the ship and I would find Petty Officer Smith in the galley, put on a paper hat and apron, serve food to the enlisted guys. I might see somebody I knew from the squadron that I'd fly with and say, Petty Officer Gilbert, what's going on? How's the flight deck? It's all greasy and stuff. And and you need to have more vegetables, not that mac and cheese right there. So here, you know, on his on his tray, right? And then the person on either side of him would go, freaking XO knows who you are? And you get this, this magnifying myth that you know everybody's names. And so every interaction of a person who is the CEO of a large company, and I'll say large, let's say 5,000 or more, is absolutely key. Every interaction, a town hall meeting where all 5,000 people are there, a a video, a Zoom call where everybody's on there, the boss is on the stage talking to people, connecting with the audience. And so how do musicians and, and other, how do comedians connect with the audience? And you're in an audience and, and you're, you're watching somebody on stage and you think that they're just talking to you. That's the skill set. It's that we are in this together. You, you're transparent. You share everything you know. And you'll know what to share and what not to share. Um, you, tell, you tell them everything you don't know. In fact, I will tell you that the leaders who are the most successful over COVID and all of the uncertainty are the ones that tell people what they know, that give them the impression, I have your back. No, we've never been through this before, but I kind of know what I'm doing here. You go this way and we're going to be fine. And you give that confidence to them. And then you, you create opportunities to go meet people. Very simple. You walk to your CEO office every day. You come up the stairs because you're, you know, you're an athlete, you're cool. You come out of the, the door and you walk by a number of little pukas where people are working towards your office. Do you say hi to those people? Yes. Do you ever acknowledge what they do for you? <laughs> do you know their names? Do you know what they do? The ones that see you every day. So because what you need to think about is, oh, you're typing away and whoosh, there goes the boss, you know, going like, you know what? That guy never talks to me. He doesn't even know what I do. That was what drove me in my fighter squadron to learn everybody's names because I was absolutely terrified that, that the sailor and then by extension their families, which is where the, where the decisions came from, would not think I cared enough about them. And when I was asking them to, you know, work seven days a week and then I take them on deployment and they don't get, they don't get all those personal family things like anniversaries and birthdays and stuff because I'm driving it, that I would not care about them. That terrified me. And so in a company, when you do that, you need to create those opportunities to come by so that somebody's sitting there who's eight levels below the boss and the boss leans on the corner of their door or puka or whatever and asks what about the pictures on their desk. They're going to go tell people at lunch. They're going to say, you know what? Mike stopped by. Mike who? You know, Mike. Mike, (laughs) did he talk to you? You're like, yeah. What did he say? You know, and all of a sudden over there, and now you're walking by, and then somebody next to him, they're hoping they're going to talk to Mike too, because it's cool to talk to the CEO and the CEO taking time. And and pretty soon what that does is it builds this attitude in the company that the boss is approachable Mm -hmm. and they care about all of us. And I'm in a safe environment because the boss cares about me. When maybe there, there's some new policies coming out. Maybe they haven't quite come out yet. And you know that that person eight levels below you is going to be victim of this policy. And you go, hey, uh, 
you know, don't tell anybody. And of course they will, you know, what I'm, I'm about to do this thing with like our pay scale. What do you think? I mean, really, what do you think? You, you seem like you, you know, you got pretty good head on your shoulders or whatever. I know you come from, you know, this sort of background. I really respect that. You know, by the way, you know, I had a friend that lived in Poughkeepsie, New York, and you get, you create a connection there. Right. And then you go, what do you think about what I'm, you know, what we're about to do here? And then by definition, you know, extends to, Hey, how, how am I doing? Like, am I doing it? Your- yeah. I mean, you, you, you know, and, and now there's this trust that starts to build and, and the tone of it, it, it adds to that trust. And that's what I did over nearly three years in command of Nimitz. I created a tone at 5,000 people and nightly, and I talk about this in the book, nightly at general announcements on what's called a 1MC. And I and get on the call sign of the CEO of the ship. There's, there's these call signs and, and the call sign of the CEO of Nimitz is old salt. Mm. And so, you know, if I was on a radio and I, I talked to an airplane, go 401 old salt, it's like God is calling you. You know, that's the captain calling you on the radio. And so on the general announcing system, they would uh, they would get on there every night between day ops and night ops. I would I would get on the general announcing system and I would tell the crew what we were doing. And when you are away from the coast, you could be 100 miles off San Diego or a thousand miles from anywhere or off the coast of Singapore. And they don't know because it's just water. Yeah. And so you have to tell them kind of where, where we are. I mean, the people that are, that, that can look at charts and things, you know, in the op centers know where we are, but most of the crew doesn't really know where we are hmm. or what we're doing, you know? So I would spend a lot of time talking about, you know, what we did that day, what's coming up. And then part of that was recognizing a sailor of the day from the, the embarked air wing. So one of the squadrons and the ship's company. So a combination of the ship. So, so we'd have two sailors up there and I would talk about these people like, like they were, celebrities, you know, Petty Officer John Smith from, you know, somewhere in Arkansas mm. and his family's this. And, and I used to get a lot of crap because people would go, oh my God, would you stop? You know, these, these people are just normal people and you're talking about their, you know, so, so I do this huge thing and my tone is just like this. Yeah. And, and so the bosun would blow the pipe, you know, you hear the, the Navy pipe and he'd blow it for the, well, there, there's a bunch of them. They competed because they would blow that pipe for like a minute. Mm. And it drove the crew freaking crazy and made me laugh. But they'd blow this pipe for a minute and then go, stand by for a word from the commanding officer. And then and then I would get on there and go, get even old salt or get even get even the Nimitz Warriors, it's old salt. You know, it's great out here. And it might be like storming. And it's and it's that's awesome. The weather's great. Come on outside. Let's go, you know, walk the flight deck, you know, and it's like you know, everything going on. But I made everything like, okay, this is great. This is what we're doing. Let me tell you what I know. Let me tell you about this cool sailor over here. And people wanted to be a sailor of the day. They got to sit in the captain's chair and they got talked about. Oh, that's so, so that's got recognized. I love that. That yeah, reminds me a lot of Mike knowing that you're in um aviation, right? It's like when the captain the I mean, for most of us who are not in the Navy, but just like you're on an airplane and the captain comes on and he like is confident that like yeah. whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And like, maybe he'll give a shout yeah. out and tell you a fun fact about the flight attendant. And you're like, oh, okay, everything's going to be fine. That but just mindful, exactly of, I'd love to hit your other themes for the book, because I think you have yeah. the second theme. Do you want to jump into that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks. Uh, so uh, it's good. Sorry, I'll start running on a story. So I'm glad you interrupted me. You know, hey, stop. The second theme is failure. So lots of failure through that book. And when, when I mean failure, I mean, be willing to fail on the way to the North Star. Mm-hmm. What does it take to get there? Okay. And, and there are about every worthwhile pursuit. What does it take to get there? What are you willing to do? What are you willing to risk? And you know that you're going to fail because I'm going to do anything it takes to go to that, that North Star. And so trip, fall, skin your knee, bump your head, rock climbing, wonderful metaphor. You know, you're going up, you're going on this path and all of a sudden you can't get over this. You have to go back down over to the your right and then, you know, come back up the other way. Life is like that. And so failure is the second theme, risking, knowing you're going to fail. And then the third theme is right behind it. And you can almost guess what it is. That's the resilience to get up and keep going. And so my journey for my North Star. So I want to go to the Naval Academy so I could fly. When I when I got to the Naval Academy, I want to do as good as I could. So I get a pilot slot in Naval Aviation. I got that pilot slot. I went down there to be as good as I could so I could fly fighters. I wanted to fly Tomcats. Uh, and, and I did that. I got that. There was a slot available. I was able to choose that slot. Now I get into Tomcats. I want to be good enough to continue to do Tomcats. And then I got there and then nuclear power happened. And we'll talk about that from a mentorship perspective. Now I want to command a carrier. That's my North Star. I do everything possible to go there. And then, you know, my whole naval career doing the things that the professional monitors told me to do en route to that higher position in my naval career. And all of it is competitive. All of it. 
my I have 30, no, 40. I have 40 full years of competing for everything I did. And so you have to beat that competition to get what you want. And you have to be a you know, good person on the way. So the resilience and recovery, and I do write about and talk about and will answer anybody. You don't fail until you quit. Right. You don't fail until you quit. You don't you fail know until you quit. Yep. Because, Edison, because why? Tell us more. Well, so if you have a goal you're going to go do and, and you're, you're not meeting your goal or you realize that, you know, here you are. It's perfect recently. So here I am on this goal. COVID happens. You know, and now here I am. So, all right, what are you going to do now? If you quit doing the thing you were going to do because COVID is there, you have fit. external factors, internal factors. Uh, could could be, but you, you by definition have failed. If you pick up and go, all right, I now have a different environment. Let me create some certainty out of this uncertainty and I'll keep going towards that goal. You might now have extended the goal out a couple of years, but you haven't failed because you're keep, you keep trying. There are so many pursuits like that. I mentor a lot of people who get into the Naval Academy, like this, this guy, Shep Pounders. A lot of them, a majority, not a majority, but a percentage of them don't get in the first year. Now, are you willing to go to another college or a preparation school or some mm-hmm. other kind of program? Are you willing to enlist in the Navy because the majority of applications from the enlisted ranks of the Navy get in. Do you want to try that to go to the Naval Academy to, to then do that? So so that's what I mean about that. Hey, I failed to get selected by you know the, the, the Naval Academy for an appointment. So I'm going to do this instead to get to the Naval Academy. Uh, that's what I'm talking about. Mike, how do you define failure? Like Because to fail, there must be also a beginning and an end. It's, it's not like you just, oh, I failed at this. Like, like, like I was crossing the street and I tripped, you know, and fell. That's not like failing. Like what are the parameters where you can both have success or failure? How, how do you think about that? Well, so so as I told you, everything I did in my career was was competing. In my first failure, actually the very first one is written in the book is when I went down to get my, my flight physical in Pensacola and, and uh, you know, I had 2020, bit 2015 vision. And when I went to that examination, my right eye failed the first time with 2025. And you have to have 2020 vision to start flight training. So my dream was just instantly shattered right there. Now, that was a physical ailment that, you know, if that held and it didn't hold, I came back later on and I don't know why. I don't know if I, I certainly didn't get any better at seeing something. So either God said, you're going to see this time or the doc put his thumb on the scale or he went, hey, you're good enough. And he was like, saw this crestfallen, all I want to do is be a pilot guy. And there were a bunch of people that went down and failed the eye test. And so I, I can feel in my heart individuals like me who just wanted to go fly and then fail that. So that was the first specter of failure. But the, the time I actually failed, you have to go carrier qualify in your training airplane in the, the training command in the Navy. So before you get your wings of gold, Navy wings flying a gray airplane like a Tomcat, you have to go to the boat in the in in the airplane you train in. And at that time, it was a T2 Buckeye, which I, I CQ'd in, carrier qualified, called CQ. So I CQ'd in that. But in the in the TA-4 Skyhawk, I failed. I did did the six landings, and it's it's described in the book. And and I thought I had passed, the landing signal officer said I had passed, but it turns out when they did the, the grade average, I didn't pass. That wicket is required to keep going. So I had not met the standard to keep going towards my wings of gold. That was the last thing. And it's pretty hard to do. It was the last requirement for me to go to Tomcats or or to go have a chance for Tomcats. And until they determined that I could go and try again, I got stopped. And that was failure to me. So tell me then, as someone who's competed, you said, for 40 years and trying to be emotionally invested in so many of the folks that you worked with, when was it the most emotional release for you along your career? Was it when you finally achieved the goal of captaining the Nimitz? Was it maybe leaving the people behind on the Nimitz? Was it retiring and being like, I can kind of take a little of that edge off of competition, though you might have never taken any edge off of competition. You know, when, when, when was the biggest emotional release? Not maybe the most emotion, but like feeling of satisfaction. So it was the recovery from the failure where I thought I was done. Mm. So, so there's two things that I write about in the book. The first one is this failure to qualify. And, and by the way, I also, the subtext of this is you turn around and look at that failure and recognize that when you do succeed out of there, it's, it's something that is better than you thought would have been. And you always. look back and go, wow, always. that's why it was supposed to happen to me. It's always better. So, Rejection is so God's Jimmy, protection. Yes, it is. <laughs> yep. that's, when you accept that, you know, life becomes a lot easier. <laughs> but, but Jimmy, the answer to your question is, is the achievement after the failure. So 
when I did ultimately qualify, I actually was so confident going back to the ship the second time. It was a done deal. And when they said you're a qual on the radio, I'm like, yep. But I was like, you know, I was huge and I got my wings. I was pretty cool. And then, and then because I passed that hurdle, I, you know, I, I was high enough, you know, I, I graduated number one in the, in all of the students that week from around the Naval tra- training, you know, country. And I, there was a Tomcat slot. I got to pick that Tomcat. And now I knew after shoot, going to the Naval Academy, going through flight training, you know, six years plus of desire that I got to go fly a Tomcat and I got to go do that. The second time, was uh, I failed to select for an aircraft carrier through the long process of Navy nuclear power training. And not until the very last time. And I was devastated because there was there was almost a decade of really, really, really hard work. And I do want to get to this mentor, you know, kick you in the ass thing later here. But the next year, after a year of screaming at the world, screaming at myself, screaming at the Navy, angry at everything, I got command of the Nimitz. and was like, oh my God, died and gone to heaven. I got to fly Super Hornets off my own ship. You know, I commanded an aircraft carrier, flew Super Hornets off the carrier. It was an epic job and just joy every single day of being in that job. And just, you know, the man is the ship. The ship is the man. You just become the ship. I, I was in heaven. I could have done that I want to go job. join the Navy. Should we go join? What do you think? Yeah, Are you, ready? you should join. Let's do it. Navy. We definitely can't fly anything with our eyesight, though. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, let me answer the. I'll tell you what. I was so invested in Nimitz, turned over command of Nimitz in Yokosuka, Japan, about 30 months after and starting on the third deployment with a bunch of stuff in between. And um, it felt good to give up command. I was I was happy. I had selected for Admiral and, you know, was headed to, to do that. That's pretty cool. I mean, you know, but, but I really loved being captain. I was depressed for three weeks. I didn't know what to do with myself. I didn't know where to apply my energy. I was, you know, you go from running at way, way, way hard, way high. I mean, running hard, 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 hard to I'm not responsible for anybody anymore. And it was devastating. So emotionally, the letdown was like a cliff. Mm. And it took me a long time to sort of recover from that. And But there's nothing as good as being the commanding officer of, of an Amer- American aircraft carrier. How, how do you feel about the Nimitz being decommissioned shortly? The Sacramento was my supply ship. That's been decommissioned for a while. You know, the Tomcat was decommissioned. It's on a stick somewhere. So I don't get that. <laughs> I'm an old Tomcat guy. So it, it just is, you know, but there's a place in my heart, you know, I run, every time I see that somewhere. And of course, Nimitz was out and, you know, in the Western Pacific recently, a lot of press about China and stuff, but I always run around going, that's in my boat. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us yeah. about the kick-ass, because we talked a little bit about the idea of a mentor. You know, we talk a lot about mentoring with a lot of good questions, and we've had recent guests really focused on, you know, kind of showing up for somebody, ask, you know, really wherever they are. But then you and I had a conversation about a mentor that kicks your ass. So tell us more. Yeah, we talked about the professional advice. And then there's, you know, the mentor that is answering your questions and helping you along as you move kind of on your own power. And then there's mentors that, you know, of course, they're personally connected with you and soft touch, touchy feely kind of things. Then there's the one that kicks your ass through a door that you don't want to go to because they see something in you that you don't see or don't want to do. But they know that for you and the organization that this door is best. So if your audience will go with me, there's a there's a door in front of you. We'll call that door A and you're trying to go through door A. And it won't you you won't open door. And right here on your on your right shoulder is door C and the or and that's open. And the organization wants you to go through door C. And, and, it, and it could be anything. You're a you know, you're a strategy person in a company and they want you to go to ops or finance or something. And you don't want to go that way. You like strategy. I want to be over here. So you need to be open to going going that direction. But until you're open to that, there's going to be people that say, hey, you should kind of go over here. And if you continue to push back against that, it can stop your progression in the organization you're in, you know, because they go, well, look, there's, there's no spot here for you to want to go do that. And I'm not talking about people that want to go be the CEO. And we're always talking about people want to get there too fast. No, I'm talking about a path. And so you're on a path, right? And so this is kind of in situ mentoring. This isn't going to the next thing. This is kind of in the process. So here I am in the Navy. And I'm flying Tomcats and I'm going to the Pentagon when I'm supposed to, and I'm doing these things I'm supposed to. And after my squadron command, there is an opportunity to be selected for the Navy nuclear power program, which gets me to Nimitz, which by the way, remember Jimmy, I told you was the best job in the galaxy. And it is, but to get there is a 10 year, very difficult 
path of academics and, uh, you know, so you go to nuclear power school and for six months, you're learning everything an engineering student in college learns in four years. And, oh, and you, it, you didn't have an engineering background. I did. I did. Oh, okay. But they, they reteach you all this stuff. And when I was in the Naval Academy, I lived test to test. I didn't learn anything. You know, I just, I just helped on test. Graduated with a 2.7, which was good enough for me to get to flight school. I'm good. Well, in Navy nuclear power, you, okay. You learn everything by definition. You will learn all of this white, white boards, white sheet of paper. You know, there's no true, false, multiple choice. It's this question at the top page this long and you're filling, you're filling stuff out. Eight hour oral board, eight hour tests, four hour oral boards with some very humorless people from the department of energy who are, you know, checking you on, on your academics. Right. So it's very, very, very hard. I mean, it, and then, it, it is nuclear energy. So that makes some sense. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. There's a reason why it's that way. But yeah. so and then at the very end, when you get selected, go to carrier. So, so you come out of school, year and a half school. You go to be the second command of an aircraft carrier to learn how to be the second command. You do that for two years. Then they give you a ship that, that has a deep draft similar to an aircraft carrier. So you do that for a while. And in case I bump that into something I wasn't supposed to, you know, thank you very much, Captain. You know, have a nice life. You don't get a chance to do it, you know, do a national asset, an aircraft carrier. But there's another selection to get to the carrier. And only two out of three of the people that start the beginning of that path get to command a carrier. And so all of us, everybody who was qualified, looked at that and, and some said, I'm willing to go. So that's that North Star, that vision, right? And other people like me, they're like, no, uh-uh. And I was doing good enough to actually continue on a path to be the air wing commander on the ship. I was convinced that's where I want to go. Dore, right? Dore. I'm going to go that way and be an air wing commander. And I still end up being an admiral later on. And I can still fly. So why would I want to stick pencils in my eyes and go to nuclear power with a 67% chance of selecting when I'm pretty darn good and I can continue to fly? So this kick-ass mentorship was... They called me in the selection board and said, we need to go nuclear power. And I said, no. And then an increasing number of people said no. And then my boss, who was a three-star at the time, and I write about it in the book, his name was John Nathlin. His call sign was Black. And he was a three-star. And two days after this conversation started, he called me down to his office. The executive assistant comes up and says, hey, the boss wants to see you. And I said, of course he wants to see me. He's going to tell me to go nuclear power. And I'd been just sleepless nights trying to figure out what to do. Mm-hmm. Well, I get down to his office and he just starts screaming at me. You know, the 15 feet, I tell the EA, I'm here to see the Admiral. He hears me coming in the door, outer door towards the inner office. And he just starts screaming at every other word is the F-bomb. And he is just, wow, wow, wow. I'm a, I'm a commander. And here's this three-star screaming at me like I'm a child. And by the time I got to his desk, I was nodding. Yes, sir. I'll go nuclear power. I'll go nuclear power. And, <laughs> And I hated, uh, I hated a lot of it. And then, and then every single phase of it got better. And then I didn't select in 2005 for that carrier. So that 67%, I was the 33%. And I thought, that's it. This is what I was afraid of after almost a decade. This, this, all of this effort and you didn't select me. And I was so angry. And the so year what did that mentor say? What did that three-star say to you? Well, he was already gone and he was a four-star later on. What he actually said to me, after I got command in Nimitz, he was just freshly retired. He brought a VIP group onto the Nimitz for a tour. And I'm up on the bow to, to receive the VIP group. And he looks at me and winks and he goes, I was right, wasn't I? I said, yes, sir, you were. <laughs> so that's the kick-ass mentor. That's somebody that you know, is trying to push you to a place that, that you don't want to go necessarily because they see something in you. Love it. Mike, really quick, at the end of our uh, time, I want to ask you a rapid fire, first word that comes to mind, word association. So I'm going to give you four words, and I want to know what comes to mind right away. Okay. Uh, So when I say mentor, what hits you? Heart. How about when I say mentee? Committed. Committed. Ooh. The word sponsor? Invested. And lastly, coach? Motivator. I love that. I love that. Mike, you've given us so much to think about. You are the first guest that I actually would like to record a voicemail for me to listen to every morning to get me out of bed and get me energized (laughs) and focused for the day. You have just the most incredible focused energy. Totally. Mike, thank you for your service. It uh, makes me feel lucky to be an American, to have people like you who keep us safe. 
Jimmy. I mean, I just have such Top Gun flashbacks. That was amazing. Mike was incredible. Talk about propulsion. There's a lot of energy and power that Mike's bringing. And uh, I think this is the first time we can say that somebody has more experience with augmenters than us because an augmenter is what a mechanical engineer calls propulsion. And more energy. I mean, I feel like you and I have a ton of energy. Mike, wow. I mean, Mike is on fire, completely on fire. I loved his first... You mean his first mentor's name and the mentee's name he brought up? Chuck Clopton. Shout out, Chuck. And I mean, we got to give a shout out to Shep Pounders. Shep, we're looking forward to an email from you. Shep Pounders, shout out. Central Casting. Central Casting. Amazing. I mean, you can't, it can't be better than that. But I love what he talked about related to tone. And I know that's what we wanted to talk a little bit about, about connecting better with others. And I always think of tone as it relates to music Mm. and the tone in your head of Mm. like the song in your head, right? I feel like I always have some kind of song in my head that's like, you know, kind of rolling through and that's how I want to present myself. So I think about a tone in terms of how you're talking to others. When you have that like Metallica tone, you're like freaking out. Everything's like chaotic. Everything's and it's wonderful, but it's also like a bit much. And sometimes people can find that to be a lot. So I like how he talked about making sure that as you're communicating as a leader, it's really all about your tone. So can you have a smoother tone? Can you have like a more relaxed tone? Can you have a tone that like a dulcet really a dulcet tone? Can you have a dulcet tone? I don't know. What do you think of that? Like the idea of how you communicate as like music. If you're talking about being in harmony and music is critical for that, I couldn't agree more. That your how you communicate, what you communicate, your actions, your goals need to all have a harmony and rhythm to them or else you're going to come across as inauthentic and all of your effort is going to be weakened and your leadership abilities are going to be reduced. I mean, Mike said it so well, like how else do you keep 5,000 people literally rowing the same boat in the same direction? You got to keep it chill. You got to keep that like chill, chill tone and make sure everybody feels that also. So I think as a leader, how you communicate your tone and then how do you do that as a mentor? How do you have mentoring versus versus advice? How do you actually have a conversation with somebody that inspires them to think more about themselves versus just like firing off a bunch of advice to them? And I love how he brought that reminder that your tone and the questions that you ask and how you ask them can really impact how somebody moves forward. I totally agree. Especially the simple piece of your tone will change when you want to and begin to be emotionally invested in the other person, or as Mike was emotionally invested of the success of all 5,000 people and his crew. Mm -hmm. That was the tone he wanted to communicate. And that totally changed how everybody was leading their day to days. If he only had a goal, let's see how fast we can go, or, you know, let's like make sure we do our chores, you know, the best, it'd be very different than Mike's, you know, really personal connection and tone that he brought to the ship. His leader. And if he was freaking out, that's terrible. 5,000 people on a boat. He cannot freak out. It's not okay. Um, it would not work well. So I love all that. And then Jimmy, this was the first time you picked how to grow to your potential was from your rapid fire. Yeah. It's new. Tell me more. How'd that happen? Well, I wasn't expecting Mike's response. Uh, I think it was that simple. And, and it really made so much sense to me that everything we're doing here at Augmenters is trying to more or less create a more perfect union. You know, that's what we want to do through mentoring, through relationships, through caring about others, as Mike said, about being emotionally invested in others. So when I said mentor and Mike said heart, I was like, that's it. You know, you need to show up caring about the person in front of you. You got to put your emotions on the line a little bit to do that. And what also rang true was when I said mentee and Mike said commitment. Because we talk all the time, we got to remove that hierarchy from mentorship and get back to a mentoring relationship. And what's crucial is the mentor may show up ready to care if they bring that heart. But if the mentee doesn't come with the energy and perspective, that they don't commit to that first meeting, and then most importantly, if they don't reach out for a second, there's no relationship. A relationship is not a one-time interaction. A relationship requires multiple interactions, and the mentee's got to bring that commitment. Mentors are not the people that are following up on you, because if they're following up on you, that is a very different role. Preach. 
Soapbox jumping off. I love that. I love that. And I think, honestly, that is such a great reminder, Jimmy, because the mentor has to bring the heart, the mentee has to bring the commitment, and that relationship can evolve, it can have evolutions, it can continue to grow, and each people in the relation, each person in the relationship can grow to their potential. So I love that. And then, I mean, if we're talking about principles, vision. Mike, I have almost never heard somebody so clear at such a young age communicating to his mentor what he wanted to do, how he wanted to get there, and what was going to actually happen, which of course was what happened. That clarity is like legendary. Completely. I asked Mike the question, why did you think your first mentor, Chuck, took a liking to you and wanted to put his heart on his sleeve for you? And Mike said, Oh, because I think he told his friends, I found this guy, Mike Manazier, and all he wants to do is go to the Naval Academy. I mean, <laughs> can't get more clear than that. That's it. That is totally it. He was super clear. He was super focused. Not everybody, of course, has that experience and everybody feels that way. But like, dang, Mike, vision, pass it on. Did, what was, did you have a vision like that? What was your vision? When you were like at the end of high school, what did you, where did you think you were going? Well, as soon as LeBron James got drafted, won one in the NBA draft and he was younger than me, it became not just abundantly clear as it had earlier in life, but just super duper duper clear. Yeah, there was no way a basketball was going to be a way for me to be uh, uh, making money playing. So uh, yeah, my vision of, you know, concrete courts uh, slowly faded. It changed. So what, what replaced it? Yeah, you augmenter. had a vision of, of doing an Augmenters podcast with me? Augmenters World Tour. I think like most people, the vision for me changes from time to time. And actually our discussions around vision, such as our Tom Preston interview and the Nirvana letter, though there's some excellent tools to begin to help you hone and craft and sculpt a vision. So it's okay if you don't necessarily wake up every morning like I'm going to Annapolis and I'm going to fly the fastest stuff out there and then command the biggest boat out there. You can find your vision over time. And Augmenters is here for you. That was a phenomenal pivot, Jimmy, and a very good a good pitch for Augmenters. So, yeah, I loved the conversation with Mike. I am so energized by him. I'm so happy that he's out in the world, like getting people fired up, which is the only word to describe him. And Mike, we cannot wait to go have morning coffee with you and do a workout. I feel like morning coffee with Mike is, you know, any time of the day though. It's totally, totally. Yeah. It was amazing. What a great conversation. And check out the book, Learn How to Lead to Win. Shout out, Mike. Augmenters out. Wow, you've made it this far and we thank you. Hopefully you enjoyed our episode and discovered new ways to bring more authentic connection into your mentoring relationships. Wanna tell them more, Jimmy? Be an Augmenter with us. Visit our website for the best interactive mentoring content at augmenters.us. Share our podcast with someone you care about. Like and subscribe. And yes, really, you following our show and writing a review, it's a big deal. Your actions provide us with the resources to continue our undefeated, unencumbered, prize-winning productions. We welcome questions and suggestions via email, hi at augmenters.us, or on social with our handle at augmentershq. We are most active and available on LinkedIn and YouTube. Shout out an earnest thank you to our intrepid producer, Erlen Cato. We appreciate you. Augmenters out. See ya. Thank you.